Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Jasmine's going to be talking to a woman who is just truly beloved in this movement. If you're not familiar with her, you're going to be so happy you listened. Joanne MacArthur takes pictures of animals. That's the short version. And the long version is that she really is one of the most important sources of information about what is happening to animals in the very darkest corners of the globe. I don't know how she does what she does, but I'm so glad she she does it. And animals who would otherwise remain hidden are the subjects of her photographs. And Hidden is actually the title of her new book, which she will be talking about with Jasmine. And this is an amazing, amazing woman. And we're so happy to have her join us again on our hen house. This week on the bonus segment, you'll be hearing more of my conversation with Joe. As always, if you're a flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this episode goes up, or you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock yet and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, we're continuing our COVID time feature of Flock Friday Zoom calls. They're at 4 p.m. Eastern on, obviously on Fridays, that's why we call them Flock Friday. They're really, really so, so good. So if you're a member of the Flock, please check out the Flock Facebook group for updates, or you can always write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. You can always write to us about that, or just to say hi, or um, I don't know, just to shoot the shit. Mm-hmm. I was able to shoot the shit this past weekend with some animals, and they're very good listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they know a lot about shit. They do. Both of those things are true. I am so happy to live near Catskill Animal Sanctuary, and I was able to go visit some animals at Catskill Animal I guess Sanctuary. Was, are they doing visits, or did you get a special privilege? Well, both. I got like a special Kathy Stevens, our friend Kathy, sh- showed me around. But also, in addition to that, I think that they are doing like a sort of limited outside only visits and their homestead, which is their B&B. I think they're renting out to like, oh, that's one, such a beautiful, one family beautiful at place. A time. Yeah. So I think one family at a time can go there. And yeah, it, the whole thing was like amazing. I mean, it was also a picture perfect day and they have gifted me this sponsorship of this pig named Jasmine. So mm. she has an E. And she has an E. Isn't that Jasmine? Yes, Jasmine is mine. She is my spot. Well, she's her own. But anyway, she tell was, us, no. Tell us more about Jasmine. So she's she is a uh, this beautiful black fur, or not really. It's not even really fur, is it? Yeah. What do you call pigs? I don't know. Hair? But I don't know. It was. I've had her for a long time, and I loved it. And it and she was a feral pig. Kathy had been was telling me that there's like a large feral pig issue in this country, which I didn't even know about. Yeah, well, especially down in Texas, it's insane. Mm. Like, there's just, they're so smart. You know, like a few pigs have escaped. And of course, pigs are incredibly smart, incredibly adaptable. Uh, They don't take no shit from anybody. And so everybody considers them a quote unquote problem. Right. Well, she was just very kind and very generous and very engaged and very engaging. And, and she, I really enjoyed spending time with her and and i met this pig i mean this cow who is very beloved apparently and his name is tucker and he was you mentioned gigantic. he was quite large yeah yeah those, 3, veal, ca- those veal calves because they're Her- herefords is that what they're called um you know that that the the breed that's used for dairy right the male 
cows don't aren't usually allowed to grow to full size and mm. unless they're breeders and of course they, because they're not raised for beef they have a very very different kind of shape and they're enormous they're like a building they're just enormous enormous yeah but you don't really see them in the real world very often only in the good world hunts at sanctuaries the the world that should be the real world right yeah but isn't and there were these turkeys who were like walking down the path with me and just like super curious really nosy actually if, if we're gonna be real and and just with these gorgeous gigantic fat feet like uh just the best feet seriously and, let's eat them well i mean that that's like a horrible dark joke but yeah it really is because we actually I, yeah well, and i don't know some people do about, actually eat them well we and and that was startling again i mean i've been vegan for like 17 years and it was really hard to leave and to just be driving through Socrates and see the animal products and you know it's very rejuvenating yeah. and uplifting and and it filled me with hope and 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 beauty and gratitude to be there at the sanctuary i remember the very first time i went to a sanctuary it was farm sanctuary and it was you know a long time ago back in probably the mid 90s and you know i'd been vegan for a while before i managed to get up there and the the experience of being in a place for the very first time where everybody got it and the animals were safe it was just stunning i mean i was stunned by it like i i hadn't known what was missing in my life until i that moment i was allowed to be in that safe place I mean, that is how it felt. And I recommend that people visit a sanctuary if you can. There's a lot of virtual visits happening right now, including a Catskill Animal Sanctuary, if you can't go in person right now. But I really also felt really devastated, too, when I left. And, you know, I go there to to be rejuvenated. And it worked. I am. I was. But, like, while driving through Socrates, as I was starting to say, was, like, you know, it, it walloped me because of the the animal products. And and so I, I kind of was having both things happen. It was also like a Sunday evening. And you and I both get that kind of Sunday evening the Sunday blues. blues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it was a beautiful day. It's such a special place. I, I feel really lucky to be situated near Catskill Sanctuary and Woodstock Sanctuary and you know, it, it they're remarkable individuals who work there and who and, and who reside there. And I I feel like just really tender lately. You know, I mean, just with this world, I think a lot of people do. And it was a meaningful experience to go there. And, and it was a reminder to me to, like, get out in nature a little bit more often, especially before it gets too cold to go out there because it's the hike- not going to be too cold. Well, I mean, the hiking trail that's right by my apartment, it'll probably, you know, I wouldn't want to do it in like the middle of winter. But there are beautiful animals in there, too. You know, like, where do you guys go? Where do you sleep? Where do you where's your families? Where do you hang out? It's like this magic, you know, it reminds me we should talk about at some point soon on the podcast, we should talk about my octopus teacher on Netflix because I just well, that watched would mean that. that. I would have to watch it. Do you know? And, okay, well, if you don't plan on watching it, I'll I'll talk about well, I, it. I want to watch it because everybody's watching it, and I've heard rave reviews of it, and then I've heard some 
some pretty deep questions raised about it. I think I was but raising. I some also of them. heard. I, is it a spoiler if I say what happens at the beginning? No, it's. I, it, it's. I told you. I don't think I know, it's a spoiler. And that's why I don't want to watch it. That the octopus gets killed. Like right, right at the beginning, and then there's the, the movie is a flashback kind of thing. And and ever since I heard that, I like I just, you know, I just don't. There's, I'm so sad these days, and there's so much wrong. It's very hard for me to voluntarily submit myself to something really that's going to make me really sad. Can I just say then something about it, since I don't think it's in the yeah, cards of course. for you to watch it? All right. So I, I understand that it's very beautiful, and it's fascinating, and it's like incredible, not only not only camera work, but also I'm sure that the like the Foley artist was very gifted because I think a lot of those sounds were probably like pieced together later. And it's like a full sensory experience. Like I, I that part was very moving, but there was something so fundamentally off about it to me. And it's an unpopular opinion, which is that I, I felt like the whole fucking thing was being posed as a metaphor like you and I have talked about like oh my octopus teacher even the name of it is like what he taught me about how I can approach my life and there's this one part where the octopus's arm gets bitten off and uh you know it's a very dramatic moment they show it happening and then they show kind of the octopus growing her arm back which is amazing it's also so cute it's this cute little arm I loved it that was a cute that was an awesome part. But the guy who struggles with depression and this and that said, and, you know, when her arm got cut off, it was like my arm got cut off and I was faced with my own vulnerabilities and and in a new way. And I just I just felt like, how can I make it through this? And I just wanted to be like, dude, it didn't happen to you. It happened to her. And they showed him like in his beautiful house like this, you know, another white guy just kind of in his beautiful life and I just felt like it was something was really off about it you know like about the whole thing that part that kind of was a through line for me throughout the whole thing about like how this guy made this octopus just stand for something as opposed to just be her own individual in her own world yeah no those sound like good points I I do want to reiterate for people who may not have seen it yet that there's a hell of a lot of people in the movement and, you know, who care very much about octopuses uh, who absolutely love this movie. So there are many opinions about it. So judge for yourself. I probably am not going to watch it. I'm a ninny. What can I say? I I just I can't take it. I can't take it anymore. I can't take the bad That's news. why you like watching cartoons because. <laughs> well, it's one of the reasons. Yeah. Also, because I learn a lot from them about how to be a good person. <laughs> is, that, is that where you learn it from? You also learn it from this mentor of yours for a long time, Martha Nussbaum, who's. Yeah. Well, I don't. Martha Nussbaum was never my mentor. Well, would be, OK, I would, that would have be, attributed that That would be word. stating it a little strongly. I met her once briefly. Mentor meaning. Uh, no, no. Not like 20 years was, ago. Not like I, she took you under her wing, but like. She does <laughs> seminal work in philosophy. Yeah, no, no. Her, Martha Nussbaum is one of the most prominent philosophers in the world. I mean, she's very, very, very well thought of. And she's really, really good on animals. Um, I'm not sure her name is as well known, but I'm sure a lot of people listening are familiar with her work. And she did this presentation online. And it was one of those presentations online. You know, sometimes you can watch them later. But this was just on Saturday afternoon. 
they, there's a thing at the University of Chicago, which is where she teaches, uh, called Humanities Day. And they had a bunch of different speakers on different topics. And she chose to speak about our relationship to animals. And she's writing a book. She has written on it before, but I don't think she's ever written an entire book on her position here. And it was really, it was really, really good. I mean, as it should have been and not hard to follow at all. And her whole idea basically, I mean, and this is not specifically for animals. Her, her approach to philosophy is called the capability approach. And uh, in, in applying this capability approach, which focuses on the thing that is good in life, the thing that we should seek in life is is what each individual needs to flourish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, take my interpretation with a grain of salt because I'm, I'm, I'm shortening a lot of really deep ideas that, you know, I may not fully understand. Hmm. But but that's I'm flourishing is is the basic good that she's focused on. And so she rejects these kind of philosophical approaches that says we should pay attention to animals because they're similar to us, because they're intelligent, because they're they're like humans. And she rejects that we should focus on suffering and pleasure, you know, the Peter Singer, Jeremy Bentham kind of approach. Uh, and she focuses on the ultimate good is that each individual needs to be allowed to flourish according to their abilities, according to their capabilities. Uh, so it's very different depending on which kind of species or which particular animal within that species you're talking about, because you have to think about what their particular uh, capacities are. And uh, I'll just list, this is maybe tedious, but I'll just list the basic capabilities that that she argues should be supported for all humans and she thinks for all animals too. Life, bodily health, bodily integrity, senses, imagination, and thought, emotions, practical reason, affiliation, that's, you know, your relationships with others, other species, play, and control over one's environment. And you can apply this to any animal. And that's that's how we should think about them. And of course, um, uh, this allows you to think about animals a lot, which is a really cool part about it. She She talks about what different animals can do. So it's not whether they can do what we can do. It's whether they're being allowed to do what they can do. And one one example she gave me of or she gave me <laughs> she was speaking specifically <laughs> to me um one example she gave uh that she, uh, which i just thought was so fascinating and i mentioned it and i wanted to hold on to it to talk about that that this and i have no idea how they knew this and she didn't explain but there was a dolphin who uh identified the fact that a woman who this dolphin was familiar with was pregnant before the woman even knew she was pregnant. Wow. And let's I say, I don't know how they figured this out. It's such a cool approach because it does let you look at who this animal is, not how much they're like us, but who this animal is. And I thought that was a pretty fascinating thing about dolphins. So I highly recommend following her work. And I'm super excited about her book, which I think she's still working on. So it's probably going to be a while. Do you think we could get her on? I don't know. She really intimidates me. I'm scared. Well, if anybody out there has a connection to Martha yeah. Nesta, then we would love to have her on for sure. I think that would be amazing. So that was fun. That was something that really allowed me to focus on animals without having to focus on 
on sadness because I just can't take it. As they, as I think I mentioned 12 times, I, I can't, like it's hard for me to follow the politics. It's hard for me to like keep up with the news because I'm the sadness is just permeating. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening for whom this is true as well. I mean, it's always true for us. We always know that there's so much suffering going on in the world, but sometimes it gets you, you know? Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Others. You know, there's this saying that's like, if you want to know, I think actually Peter Brandt said this when you, well, he was quoting it when you interviewed him a few weeks ago. It, it, he was botching it and I'm botching him botching it. But it was something like, if you want to know how you feel about something, write about it. And I am turning 41 next week and I am writing this piece for Kinder Beauty, which is basically 41 ways I prioritize self-care. And, you know, I'm writing it almost like because, okay, well, now I have a deadline, but I'm trying really hard to focus on those tiny little things that really do ultimately add up to making yourself feel better a little bit in the times of sadness when it overcomes you. And it helps me to list it out. It really does, you know, so I can imagine I'll have to read that. And maybe do it. It's the time of year a little bit, too, even though fall is my favorite time of year. There, there can be something very melancholy about it. For sure. I'm experiencing that in a slightly new way because of having moved back to the East Coast after living in California, especially in Southern California, for the last several years because there are no seasons there. So I, that melancholy thing is not, in my opinion, is not as pronounced when you're in like an area like Southern California. I mean, it's a real thing when the light starts to fade in the evening and the light changes and... and And even though it's so beautiful and even though I don't hate winter at all, I like winter, but still the, the, the leaves falling and it's just a, it's a, there's a sadness in it. No doubt about it. The, uh, the birds are leaving. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to look forward to too. And, you know, you've reminded me in the past about embracing Huga, H-Y-G-G-E, Huga, the sort of Denmark philosophy of like coziness and warmth and wonder and beauty. And so I'm all in. I'm like, okay, this is the winter of Huga. I don't care about what the political climate is demanding of my energy. I am embracing Huga. It's like, you know, velvets, which I'm actually sitting on a velvet chair right now. Well, it's not a velvet chair, but there's a velvet chair cover on it. I <laughs> have uh, velvets and like dark, you know, flowy clothes and like cake and r- deep, red wine and 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 family and community and it's goodness you know and it's it's coziness and so maybe just lean in you know and like huga huga yeah huga huga forever okay well it's a perfect time for huga you're right i'm gonna i'm gonna focus on some self-care i've you've inspired me good i haven't even read your article and you've inspired me to focus on self-care because who better to care about than me (laughs) <laughs> I think everybody else should do the same thing and focus on caring about me. Mary Ann Care. <laughs> well, that's funny. Uh, I mean, that is a thing. Patrice Cullors, who's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, coined the term collective care, which is where we are. No, or community me. care. Community care, where we're taking no. care of each other. No. Anyway, and, and of Mary just me. And of Marianne. Okay. So, you know, sometimes you have your glasses on your face and you, you're looking for them. You don't know where they are. I am speak for yourself. I was just looking for my microphone, which I am holding (laughs) and speaking into. That's all. This is your friendly reminder to vote. 
Go to vote.org if you need more information. Our Hen House supports vegan businesses. This is a segment that we started early on in COVID. And it's because a lot of businesses are struggling, especially vegan businesses. And we want to just sort of do our part by like shouting out a couple or a few each week that have come into our I'm not sure vegan businesses are struggling more than others. We just care about them more. <laughs> That's true. So we want to support them and we want to make sure that they get through this. And absolutely. So and we will always make sure that we have at least one black owned business. So this this week, we're going to talk about a company that we love called Seasoned Vegan, which is woman owned and black owned in New York City. And I love it. I'm a big fan. Seasoned Vegan is an amazing soul food vegan restaurant in Harlem owned by Chef Brenda Biener, known as Chef B and her son, Aaron. It is inspired by their family's New Orleans roots. And so they opened their restaurant in 2014 and they serve up amazing next level plant-based classic Southern food. Their family has been vegan since the 1990s, I learned, when Chef B's husband emerged from a 21-day fast with a desire to take all animal products out of his diet. And so Chef B took it on and and she's like, all right, I'm going to veganize the Southern and Creole staples passed down from my mom. And so that's what she did. She created meals that eventually brought the whole neighborhood knocking at her door, even though they were skeptical at first. And so for those of you who are not fortunate to be close to this restaurant, you can shop at their online market at the supervegan Basically, you save time, animals, and the planet every time you shop at the Super Vegan Market. You can find them at seasonedvegan.com and again, the supervegan Our next company is makes a product that I have not had in, in so long and I want right now immediately. It's rescue chocolate. I love this chocolate. You know, some people love really dark, very, very moody kind of chocolate. Huga. Rescue chocolate is happy chocolate. It's very sweet. It's very, I just love it. And perfect timing for it. It's Halloween is coming up. And and as, as their slogan says, rescue chocolate is the sweetest way to save a life. Because from each chocolate purchased, 100% of the net profits are donated to animal rescue organizations around the country. And the packaging of each vegan flavor of rescue chocolate sheds light on a different aspect of the current pet quote-unquote overpopulation epidemic. And their flavors include peanut butter pit bull, pick me pepper, fosterific peppermint, the fix, which is just plain chocolate, mission feral fig, which has figs, cranberries, almonds, and spices, yum, forever mocha, up and up PBJ pup. I just want them every single one of those. They're always vegan, they're fairly traded, and they're organic. And I got to get online and order some. You can find them at rescuechocolate.com. Well, this could be part of your hygge philosophy because chocolate oh, is excellent. part of it. I can forget all the rest of hygge and just eat chocolate. Well, I think you would like the rest of hygge as well, though. I love rescue chocolate. I've loved them since they started. So, yeah, support them. You made a video yes, once. Yes, 100,000 years ago, approximately. Uh, yeah, and it was right. like one of the first videos you ever made. I yeah. did. That's right. I think that was like, oh, that was with my flip cam <laughs> before your phone made videos. That's funny. God, we thought flip cams were so cool. Oh, my God. They were. They were. What can I say? I actually think maybe they were better <laughs> because like they didn't they weren't so fancy. And, you know, they kind of just did that one thing. Oh, I loved them. 
we wrote that article, a flip cam in a dream, I think it was called. <laughs> We're so old. <laughs> I know. I know. We've been doing this forever. Right. We have. Yeah. Oh. Is everybody vegan yet? Yes. Is everybody vegan? Mm-hmm. They are. Did we win? We won. We won. All right. Well, this isn't a vegan business directly, but they are helping vegan businesses. Veg Events connects people with vegan events worldwide and provides resources to event organizers. They're free. The weekly agenda newsletter emails subscribers once a week with a list of vegan events near them. Veg Events also hosts a free biweekly virtual vegan business owner speed networking event every second and fourth Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can find the listing on VegEvents.com. I love that. That's super cool. Yeah, and I was checking it out. And of course, right now, loads of these events are virtual. So even if you're not in this specific area where they're taking place, you can check them out. So, yeah, check that out. Let's get to the interview now, because I'm really looking forward to it. Joanne MacArthur is an award-winning photojournalist, sought-after speaker, and the founder of We Animals Media. She has been documenting the plight of animals on all seven continents, all seven, check that out, for almost two decades. She is the author of two books, We Animals and Captive, and most recently the editor of Hidden, Animals in the Anthropocene. She was also the subject of Canadian filmmaker Liz Marshall's acclaimed documentary, The Ghosts in Our Machine. Joanne is based in Toronto, Canada, and she travels many months each year to document and share the stories of animals worldwide. As I said before, I don't know how she does what she does. And she will be joining Jasmine right after this. The Our Hen House podcast is brought to you in part by Forager Project. California crafted since 2013, Forager Project is an organic, plant-based, family-owned and operated food company creating innovative, delicious-tasting products sourced from nature's finest ingredients. That's nuts, seeds, ancient grains, and fruits and vegetables. Crafted by fellow foragers in its own unique, purpose-built creamery, the only 100% organic, plant-based facility of its kind, Forager Project's family of foods include totally organic, and 100% vegan yogurts, nut milks, sour cream, kefirs, shakes, and butter. Let me tell you about Forager Project's Vote campaign, which I'm especially excited about. Forager recently announced its commitment to help cultivate democracy. During the next month, Forager Project will be shifting packaging on its yogurts, kefirs, and milks to encourage consumers nationwide to get involved and vote this November, and they're launching a broader effort with organic and paid advertising to encourage everyone to vote this November 3rd. I'll be voting, and I sure hope you will be too. They want you to cultivate democracy and vote. So get involved at foragerproject.com vote and follow Forager Project at at Forager Project. Welcome back to our henhouse, Joanne. Uh, this is going to be a great 30, 40 minutes of chatting with you, my friend. I was just thinking about you before and how I used to get to see you like with regularity. I mean, like yeah. years ago, I remember just, you know, going walking through Farm Sanctuary and then there you are with your camera, like pushing Marianne and I into like a pig barn and taking our photo or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We used to cross paths there in New York yeah. City and at various events. And we've both been on this trajectory in animal advocacy in various ways. And it's been really cool to watch yours and take part in mine. 
yeah, and I'm not yeah. going anywhere. It's just going to keep evolving. Well, you are a real hero to me, and I've I've gotten so much out of interviewing you and listening to your interviews, and of course through your incredible work. I actually remember you said on our henhouse once, and I think I think about this often. You've basically been a war photographer, going behind the scenes in areas where animals are exploited behind shut doors and taking their photos and documenting it. And, you know, amongst many other things, that's one of the things you've been doing, like a pro, which, of course, The Ghosts in Our Machine is a documentary that follows your story of trying to get those books published. Anyway, one thing that I find incredible is that when I interviewed you once, you said that you think we have a beautiful world. Because I think the question was something like, how do you find hope and beauty in this world? And you said you think this is a wonderful world. And I just always think if Joanne MacArthur has seen what she has seen and can say that, then I can too, even if I don't understand how in that moment. Mm. Okay, well, we can can go back to that. Things have evolved since then. I continue to think about coping mechanisms and working on that and helping answer those questions that people have around, you know, how do you, how do you know what's going on in the world and still lead a really happy and fulfilling and motivating and optimistic life? And you also mentioned uh, war photography, which is a great springboard as well, because that has certainly evolved with, uh, with what I'm doing from the project We Animals into an NGO, a media NGO, We Animals Media. And now part of my job as an executive director, which is hilarious, is to promote animal photojournalism and mm. promote the work of others and get that out into the world. Where do we start? Wow. <laughs> so many things, so many things. That is so great. I, I'm excited to chat about that evolution because that certainly is something that has changed since your story was documented in Ghosts in Our Machine. I mean, now that you're helming this organization that is that is mainstreaming it. I, I mean, that's incredible. So let's talk about hidden animals and then we'll start unpacking the rest of those items that you brought up. Uh, so hidden, your book, Hidden. Yes. Uh, it, yeah. is, it is beautiful. It is staggeringly painful. It is It is full of uh, it, it, photos that are like you just, you know, they, they pretty much change you immediately upon seeing them. So tell us about Hidden and how it came to be. Okay. Well, there is a war photographer named James Noctway. And a bunch of years ago, he put together this tome of a book called Inferno. And it's his decades of documenting genocide and famine and civil war and the things that we do to one another. And when I saw that book, it really moved me to the core. And I thought animals need a book like this, something historic, an indictment, not sugarcoated in any way. There's not a happy ending at the at the end of our book. This is just a document of what is and what should never again be. And for a long time, I've been dreaming of making this book, but not just with my work. The book has 43 contributors and 38 of them are, are animal photojournalists and um, or war photographers who have done animal stories mm. as well. Oh my gosh. And... Um, I really wanted to go big with this book and it's physically big. It's a five pound book, 320 pages, Mm -hmm. and it has just over 200 images, which is interesting how that turned out because with a 320 page book, you could really cram in, you know, 1200 images in there if you wanted to. And Mm -hmm. part of me wanted to, but with those 
stellar images, those heartbreaking, show-stopping images that are in there, I wanted them to have a lot of space. So what you're seeing is one image across two huge pages. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has been a labor of love with my co-editor, Keith Wilson. So he's a journalist from the UK and he's well known in the photo community and uh, has interviewed many of the big photographers in the world. He's produced many books. And my other co-worker is David Griffin, who is, uh, has worked a long time with the Washington Post and National Geographic as a designer. So this is all part of making this a, a big, visible, high-quality message. Wow. Well, and it, it's it's definitely succeeding in that. Like, it seems to be an extension of your advocacy that you've been working on for so long. It's like you're documenting the world is also a reflection of the unfolding of, of the way that you go about your activism and changing the world for animals through your photography. And I know that the first chapter of the book is entitled Don't Turn Away. So I wanted to chat about that because obviously this is the biggest problem that animals face. And most people care about animals. I mean, I think at least to some extent, but they they refuse to know or even acknowledge or allow the knowledge to get past a certain wall. So with everything you just said and and <laughs> this, the, mm-hmm. the weight of the world looming on us, both in terms of the bullshit of politics as well as the horror of what continues to happen to animals. How will this book help break through that wall? Well, part of the equation is getting people to see. And there are many parts of the equation which will lead us to animal equality. And, you know, there's the legal side and the scientific side. And what's exciting is that there are a lot of efforts these days. As you know, there's a growing effort on behalf of all animals. And so hidden is just one part of that. What's also exciting about what we're doing uh, with the book is providing these images and lots more from We Animals to campaigns, to people working on policy and and all of this. So um, the images certainly don't end in hidden. It's sort of actually a, a, a launching board for these images and wider use for the images. And you got Joaquin Phoenix to write the foreword, which is kind of awesome. I just was able to interview him for Veg News, which was like a career peak for me. Um, he's such an incredible activist. How did you manage to to get him involved? Well, I emailed him and uh, and he was very excited to to join and said whatever he could do to help, he would. So that was beautiful. Mm. That was also a highlight for me to have his backing. Yeah. Well, hopefully that can elevate the book too and help get more people interested. So you mentioned the contributing photographers can you tell me a little bit more about how they came to work with you on this? Yeah, I've been watching animal photojournalism evolve for quite a while now. There were very few of us doing really high quality photography for hidden animals uh, for quite some time. But as you know, the quality of campaign images has really increased in recent years. So I've been watching around the world who's doing what. And so I was amassing a list of names. I was um, squirreling away images that I was seeing pop up on social media and taking note of who had photographed them. I ended up with quite a big folder of images that I knew I wanted to put in a book someday. Mm, That's so great. Well, do you have a feeling actually, it's a a total pivot here, but, you know, obviously the image of animals in exploitative situations is a form of activism. And I know that a lot of people 
take these images with their iPhones because that's what we have available to us or our phones, whatever they are. Maybe they're not iPhones. Do you have a feeling about like sort of pedestrian photography, pedestrian activism photography? I mean, do you think this is something that we should be leaning into as a way of documenting what's happening or as a photo- as a real photographer? Is that like, is that an annoying? I think it's necessary for us all to do the DIY work, but we need to do a good job at it. I think that we could all hone our skills when it comes to taking animal pictures, because if our purpose is to move people and get people to really look and engage them, we have to take good pictures. So work at taking better pictures and don't do things like take 78 pictures of the same thing and they're out of focus and just post them all on social media. It's right. kind of a turnoff. So, so we, can all, we can all do better there. And actually, if I may, yeah, we did create a masterclass of animal photojournalism. We spent hundreds of hours putting it together. It's quite beautiful and it answers the questions that people ask me all the time, whether it's about coping or technical skills and access. And uh, yeah, hundreds of people have taken the masterclass so far. And I'm really glad that it's proving to be useful on a lot of fronts. Plug, plug, plug. (laughs) I was going to ask you about that. So I'm glad that you brought it up. But what are other tricks of the trade to get a great photo of an animal that will break through that wall of denial? I think some of my most successful images are those which speak for themselves. Some images require a story to illuminate exactly what's going on. Whereas an image that speaks for itself, for example, uh, is often one that's shot close up of an animal. So you get to connect with them. If there's eye contact, all the better. And perhaps in the background, you're seeing the situation that we have the animal in. Now, one of my images that I'm thinking of is a rabbit who's next in line for slaughter and her ears are back and she's clearly distressed. And in the background, you see rabbits, row rabbits hanging upside down and you see the slaughter worker there. And it's one of these uh, images that just stops you and it speaks to everything that's going on and it speaks to what the problem is. Mm. I have like my cat decided to play in the background. So there's all this like cat play noise. Oh, okay. in the background. <laughs> if you hear that, Joe, you say that when we see animals in such vast numbers, their individuality is erased and our compassion is exhausted. When you're taking a photograph, I assume that one of the major goals is to overcome that tendency to allow people to see individuals. How do you work to do that? Can you elaborate a little bit more on like what your mental process is? Wow. How long do we have, Jasmine, <laughs> to talk about we have all the world? Uh, that, talk about the question of reaching people, and which is really what it's about. And there are just so many ways of doing that. And it is not just about the content and the quality of the image. That's part of it. But how you present it and how you talk about it. And I used to think that people were all going to be like me. They were going to see an image of cruelty, think about the the sentience of the animal, and then stop eating animals. Uh, But that's not how the world works. And so context is important. Compassionate sharing and conversations are important uh, to start with. And, And knowing your audience you can't just hit people over the head with a bunch of horrible images that will make ter- people turn away for the most part. 
So it's it's a complex equation, which I'm continually uh, working on. <laughs> and how would you describe the mission of animal photojournalism and its roots in conflict photography? Similar to conflict photography, there are very few of us who want to go into these dangerous places and document intense suffering. It takes a special kind of very determined person. I think we have in common with conflict photographers, just this really insane drive to provide the world with that piece of the puzzle, which is the insight, uh, the ability to get up close and on the ground with what's happening. Back to your point about seeing the individuals amidst the masses, we know that the images that are most effective are those which show an individual amidst the turmoil, be that a person or a non-human animal. It's the same thing. Mm. Oh, there's a lot here. And I, I know that people really should be able to use a book like this as a tool for activism. So there's so many different layers here. There's the layers of gathering the photographers. There's the layers of probably taking care of the emotional lives of the photographers because this is very traumatic work. And then there's the tool of after it's published, we get it and we want to use this as a tool for activism, which brings me back to the ghosts in our machine, which was basically documenting that struggle. And I was actually in a scene with you in it where we were talking about how difficult it is to get this in people's hands because agents aren't interested all the time in books like this and publishers aren't always interested in books like this. So I'd love to know a little bit more about how we can get this book to be used as a tool for activism and how things have changed for you since you started doing that probably a couple decades ago. Yes, we uh, in the film, we were sitting around Martin and Mia's dinner table talking about how to get people to look and to not turn away uh, my eternal struggle. However, since that conversation, things have really changed in the media. And we are seeing now not just stories about animal sentience and animal welfare, but the overlap with climate change and labor rights. It's really interesting that the door finally has been pushed open. And uh, on those conversations and part of my work with We Animals Media is to keep that door open and to keep the conversations flowing. And they have to be conversations. They can't just be the one-way shouting that the animal rights movement can do and has, has been known to do. And so we're evolving. WAM, which is the acronym for We Animals Media, which I love, WAM is evolving and learning to have better conversations, but not just us. Um, activists are, are learning that as well. Uh, that's how you bring more people to the table. Mm. Listening to why people eat animals or listening to why people farm animals and working with them rather than just shouting at them. I mean, my images are pretty shouty. They're pretty in your face. It's a close-up look of, of what is happening, but they can and uh, are meant to be a dialogue to broader things. Well, and I think that they are. And you brought up We Animals. I want to talk about that now. We Animals Media has really been doing incredible work. It's also like my very favorite kind of thing in the world, which is a media organization that helps animals. Hence, you know, <laughs> hence my career. But can you tell us like what else We Animals Media has been doing in addition to producing this book? Because I love everything about it. Uh, Including that it's called Wham! And it makes me think of the 80s. 
<laughs> exactly. I was on a walk with my dog several years ago when I was thinking strategically about expansion and uh, building We Animals, the project into We Animals Media. And I thought of We Animals Media. I was like, oh, that sounds good. And I like this vision. And then I thought of the acronym. I was like, oh, I got <laughs> home and I just registered all of the domains. Yeah, sure I love it. Them. <laughs> so yeah, Wham does a lot and we've we've bitten off a lot and we are ambitious and thank goodness for my wonderful team of amazing, passionate, clever staff because they're totally on board with working hard and building all that we're building, which is we tell stories, we go out and we do shoots and photo essays, we write, we create films. And one of the most important things that we do is take all of this material that we shoot and we put it on our archive. So one branch of what we do is the We Animals Archive. And that has thousands and thousands of images and video clips available for anyone helping animals. I think that's our, our biggest legacy and our most useful contribution to animal advocacy in a way of amplifying what we do. I mean, it it wouldn't be quite as useful if we were putting all of our efforts into creating one story and getting that one story out in the world. Mm. Whereas now uh, we have people from around the world daily asking for images. We just get to fulfill those requests and off they go. And so millions, millions more people are seeing and using our images. Way to fill a void. I mean, that's the kind of thing that like, yeah, before we had you doing this, we didn't have it. This didn't exist. And actually, that makes me think for for those who are unfamiliar, can you remind us about the We Animals Archive and how people can access that? Yeah, it's it's simply weanimalsarchive.org. And you search by keyword, or you can go through the galleries. So whether you're looking for gorillas in Africa or pigs in Scandinavia, uh, hens in Australia, there are images from several contributors now. It's not just me from, I think, over 60 countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we are expanding to meet the needs of animal advocacy. So we are looking at what the groups are doing and they need more images of fish fish, the experiences of fish. So we're doing that. We just finished a shoot in Italy, in the Mediterranean, and we have more coming. There's been an increased focus on chickens because chickens are suffering in the highest numbers globally, way more than cows and pigs. So we have an increased focus on hens and uh, broilers as, as the industry term. I'm sure that even more so than your average consumer of like magazines or whatever media, whatever mainstream media is in front of us, when you see those photographs of, oh, there's an ape in a, in a newspaper article and you recognize that that ape is in a zoo, that ape is a, a prisoner, that ape is not, is not what your average consumer thinks that he or she is. It must be very frustrating, especially given the work that you do. It is true. And that's a great thing to point out. Uh, when we are seeing images in the media of animals, they are often captive. And uh, you can tell by the background or, you know, they are a cow, but it's a cow with an ear tag. And yeah, images that continue to objectify them and show their exploitation. But uh, yeah, we do have a, a wide variety of really good images now out there for people to use. And when I say we, I mean, all of us animal photojournalists are starting to provide that for campaigns worldwide. It's a really exciting place to be right now in this growth of this new genre of, of photography. And I've started writing about it because 
I, you know, animal photojournalism is, is really political and it's not conservation photography. It's not wildlife photography. It's not companion animal photography. And I really wanted to name it and define it so that people could look at that and say, yeah, that is a specific thing that I want to do. It has evolved necessarily as our world devolves into this like insane use of animals that is, that is invisible. Mm. And with that in mind, let's go back to what I was speaking about at the beginning of our chat, which is that when I interviewed you several years back and I, and I said, like, this is such a messed up world. How do you, how do you manage? And you said, and I'm majorly paraphrasing. I'm sure you were much more eloquent than this. You said it's that you didn't see it that way. You, you saw it as a beautiful world and that we get to be on. We get to be on this planet. We get to do this work. And I always use that as something that would help me get through really dark moments. And you said, well, when I just brought this up half an hour ago, you said, well, things have kind of changed since then. So is that not how you feel anymore? Or do you still feel that way? Oh, I feel even more so that way. (laughs) I am even way more in tune to just this improbability of me being here, us all being here for this, just this little moment in time and how lucky I am to have this precious life where, you know, I live here in this, in this safe country. Like I'm just so fortunate to be here. For, so, for those listening in Canada. Yeah. Not in the, I'm here in, I'm here in Canada and I just feel so incredibly fortunate to be here for this, this brief moment that, you know, I, makes me, it, it, it fills me with a fundamental happiness, first of all, but it also fills me with a drive to do the best that I can for others. I mean, what more could we think of doing to make this a happy life? And, and uh, I mean, I could go into some serious cliches here, but that we're, you know, all aware of, I mean, we know what fundamentally can make us happy and what can't. And, what can't is accumulating material things and mm-hmm. and living in a superficial way. But for me, I, I guess I have spent a lot of time thinking about how I want to live and how I want to be in the world every day. And I want to lead with kindness and I want to help others. And so I try to make that every day foundational to to my interactions with people and to and to my actions in general. That brings a sense sense of calm and purpose and it helps to keep focus and and not and focus on the good and not and not on the bad i'm well aware of the the terrible things happening in this world but i use that as motivation to help create change rather than to just drown me in hopelessness because action is taking action is just a lot harder when you're Mm -hmm. absolutely drowning in hopelessness. And also I have this one short life. Like I want to be happy. I want to love and be loved and I want to laugh. And, and so I will, I'm choosing that, you know, I'm, I'm choosing hope. I'm choosing optimism and to have a fantastic time while I'm here. (laughs) I love that. I have often framed choice as something related to hope. And I like I like the way you put it even more that it's something that we can choose regarding and actually enjoying our time on the day to day. And it's hard sometimes, especially with, with knowing what's going on. And I know PTSD is a huge risk with this kind of work. Have you been able to sort of mentor your photographers 
regarding possible PTSD and, and how they might be able to deal with that? I do my best to, not just the photographers in my circle, but I mean, people who are sensitive, who are looking at the work that we do. This is highly traumatizing to face what we are doing to others. So I have only so much capacity for for that. And so I, you know, I recommend that people talk to professionals. I recommend that people read books on mindfulness and coping and psychology. There are so many tools that we have for coping and we need to think about coping, not just because of what we're seeing about animal abuse, but honestly, as you know, like what, what a year and what a time to be alive where things are so polarized. Mm -hmm. So self-care to use that very generic term, it's much more than that. Emotional intelligence, I think, is a better way of phrasing it, is something we absolutely need to take the time to build and to nurture because things are rough. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, so far, it doesn't seem that COVID has awakened people to the connections to what we do to animals, whether in wild markets or potentially in factory farms. And even the slaughterhouse coverage focused on the dangers to humans, right? Like calling them meat Mm -hmm. plants, which you know, Rachel Maddow, who I watch every every night, calls them meat plants. Yeah. Rachel, come on. Do you think yeah. that do you think that there's <laughs> a way to get this connection to break through and that like your book and your work and the work of those around you can help to do that? I I agree with you to an extent, but I also think that the changes are happening as a result of COVID and that we'll see that play out not immediately. I mean I was hoping for an immediate change as well. All of a sudden there's a big shift in eating plant-based. Uh, I think that there, from what I'm seeing, there is a shift and it's just going to continue. And as a result of, of COVID and climate change, we're just going to see this almost inevitable move towards plant-based and cultivated meat mm. and, and this kind of thing. I wish that COVID awakened us much more quicker, but uh, I, I do think it's part of the part yeah. of the enlightenment that's going to happen. I mean, my gosh, it, it has to be. If, if it's not at all, we're hopeless, Yeah, but, but we're not hopeless. We're not. Well, and in addition, sorry to continue down this, this road, but I'll bring it back up before we end the interview. But in addition to the animal exploitation, you have witnessed your experiences viewing what goes on in these industries must have exposed you to people who are living brutalized and exploited lives. I'm wondering if you feel a strong connection between what is happening to the animals and what is happening to the people who we also refuse to see. I have an enormous amount of empathy and compassion for the people that I meet in these industries, uh, slaughterhouses and factory farms. I have met laborers who do not want to be doing what they are doing. And I know that because they tell me and they ask if I can help them get another job in some other sector, which really breaks my heart. There is one point in the book, Hidden, where uh, we had to find some text to accompany, to go next to my image of a man clubbing a pig. Uh, this is happening in a slaughterhouse. And it's, it's a really shocking image. And I spent a long time thinking about what kind of text I wanted next to that image. Anything that I could come up with was feeling a little bit trite or inappropriate because of the, like, the image is just so grave. But coming back to you know this thing about having empathy for the workers, I decided to put a quote. It's almost like a prayer, a well-known prayer by Shanti Deva, who uh, wrote this 1,200 years ago now. 
and he was a Buddhist. And this is just this very lovely prayer. And I decided to write this here. It's one of the only hopeful things in the book. And I have it next to this image because it's not just about the animals, it's about all the animals in the image, because there are a lot of humans there too. And it reads, may the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power and may people think of benefiting each other. For as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, until then, may I too remain to dispel the miseries of the world. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. It's, it's, it's the yeah, often repeated prayer. And also it's my prayer. It's my prayer for everyone struggling on this earth. Yeah, well, I'll I'll hold on to that because there's a lot going on here and it it's important to find the hope within a book like this, within the work you do. Speaking of which, you were recently featured in a short film, Promises. Can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, we made that short film because people are always really curious about me and the act of going into places. So it's a short film that follows me as I investigate and document a broiler farm, which is a chicken farm, chickens raised for meat. Mm. It's just a close-up look, an exploration of what it feels like to be there and what it's like for the animals. There's a part in the film where I, I sit down for a while to document the, the chickens and they actually come up on my lap, which is really something. Mm. I think maybe that's the most interesting part of this short film is that these exploited animals are so curious and friendly. Friggin breaks my heart that if we met that chicken on the street, you know, if, if a chicken came up to you and wanted to interact with you and you sat down and it got up in your lap, like there's no way you would kill that bird. And yet these are the personalities of billions of birds who are confined in these places every single day. Yeah. So true. The, like the power of one individual, you know, who we see versus when when we just kind of turn away because the numbers are so staggering. But yeah, if we just met that one individual, then everything would be different, which is something you allow us to do through your work. You know, you allow us a, a, an introduction to somebody instead of just an industry. Do you ever have the feeling that this whole enterprise animal exploitation is like huh, like a house of cards, that there won't be a gradual improvement in how we treat animals, but there will be a sudden epiphany? Like as so many of our listeners have had, as so many of your followers have had, and that from that, the scales will fall from people's eyes and they will see and everything will change? <laughs> Jasmine, I don't know. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I love I love saying I don't know in an interview. It feels so liberating. Yeah. Yeah. And but I love what you said. I mean that you've just opened up a big question and a possibility for people to to think about. And I'm not sure that I can add to it, honestly. I don't know. You know, it could have been COVID. Maybe it'll be something else, and maybe it'll just be a series of snow, you know, snowball effect, which we are seeing, seeing a snowball effect now with climate change and the fires. I mean, I was shooting in early 2020, the fires in Australia, and I thought that was bad. I was like, Ugh. wow, 2020 is really something. Hello, January. Oh my right. gosh. Yeah. Right. Little did I know, but um, things are really snowballing. Maybe that means this is a house of cards and hopefully a house of cards for the end of animal exploitation and not for the end of, uh, life on earth yeah. <laughs> going in this direction. 
Well, absolutely. I'm going to hold on to all of that hope and all of the possible goodness. And it is our privilege to to be here, to be able to do the work that we do. And it's important to remember that, especially when things seem really bad, because it's not actually about us. We're like the vessel to to social change. For you, part of that vessel is your camera and the work that you do with We Animals and We Animals Media and your books. So I am giving great hope and I feel very emboldened every time I speak with you. Like, even though everything's really shitty, like, okay, we, we got this. We can, we can turn this around. I have to believe that. I mean, I have to, and you must have to also. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we are turning our backs to the, to our knowledge of the bad things happening. It's just redirecting our focus. We can know full well how bad things are, but continue to put one foot in front of the other in a positive way and enjoy our fleeting lives that we are just so lucky to have make the most of it. So that's what I'm doing. Sounds like that's what you're doing too. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm giving yeah. a lot of energy from people like you. I mean, you run a media organization too and and people often will say things to me like, you know, thank you for doing this and it just honestly feels like a service to me. I get to I get to tap into your brain. I get to talk to people's people who do so much more important work than I do who who get to tell us their story on our hen house and and it's it's very humbling and it's very inspiring so I thank you for all that you're doing and thank you as well because what we're both doing is helping get a message farther mm-hmm. I'm doing it with images and you're doing it with conversations yeah. It's about dissemination and widening the circle of compassion and broadening our audience is pretty exciting. Yeah, and it's storytelling too. Like you're telling the story of these individuals. You're telling the story of these animals. You're telling the story of the photographers behind the camera. And so I think, you know, storytelling and personal narrative and the arts are key to social change. And it's something that uh, I think that the animal rights movement is only beginning to tap into. So I'm a big fan. And so can you please tell our listeners how they can find out more about your work and about We Animals Media and Hidden and support your efforts? Thank you. Uh, Yes. So We Animals is now We Animals Media, as you know, and that is the web address. It's really easy, weanimalsmedia.org. And if you would like to use our images, it's weanimalsarchive.org. And it's an interesting business model as well, because we want to make everything available for free. We have a great spirit of generosity here with our organization. We rely on grants and donations. Mm. So we are always grateful to people who are supporting us in that way. Last thing I want to mention is our Unbound project, which is a a project that celebrates women on the front lines of animal advocacy worldwide. So we really do have a lot going on with our projects and supporting photographers, supporting women, supporting animals. Uh, so there's there's a lot there to dig into. If you see something you like there, you know the deal. Share it, get it out, help us get it out yeah. there into the world. For sure. And I have a couple more questions for you. I'd love to ask you for our bonus content for our flock, if you don't mind just hanging on and we could chat a little bit more about Unbound there as well. So Joanne, thank you so much for being here and for being everywhere (laughs) where you go and for changing the world for animals. We're big fans. Thank you again, as always. We're excited to announce Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy. 
a collection of essays written by farmed animal protection advocates who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial diversity, equity, and inclusion as we work to create a more just animal protection movement. The essayists contributing to this virtual anthology were all attendees of the 2020 inaugural Encompass DEI Institute, a virtual training for farmed animal protection advocates, which was originally held in February 2020. Our hen house was a proud sponsor. The authors, myself included, are a group of advocates who wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow. And we'd like to hold ourselves and our peers accountable and create new ways forward. Encompass, the nonprofit that organized the Institute, aims to make the farmed animal protection space more equitable by working with organizations to operationalize racial equity and with individual advocates of the global majority by helping them cultivate their leadership potential. Encompass Essays is a collaboration between Our Hen House, Encompass, and Sentient Media. I am lucky enough to be the editor of the essay collection. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to centralize anti-racism around our advocacy, which requires a deep dive into the ways white animal advocates have historically used our white silence and white apathy to ensure that the animal rights movement has been centered around a white supremacist culture. We need to change that. This essay collection will provide a new, necessary way forward, one in which we can be held accountable for centering our anti-racism in the fight to end the exploitation of animals. Sentient Media, where these essays will roll out throughout 2020, is a robust digital platform that reports on animal agriculture and its impact on the world, as well as fosters a writer's fellowship program where newer journalists are mentored by seasoned ones. Beyond the digital presence for Encompass Essays, which includes plans for audio versions of the essays, which will air on the Our Hen House podcast next year, Lantern Books will be publishing an anthology version of the collection in both hard copy and digital form. The book is set to be released in late 2021. Down the road, we will parlay the work of the collection into a springboard for digital panels, collaborative discussions, and hands-on trainings. Additionally, the hope is that this is the beginning of a three-part series where the authors will revisit our anti-racist work and provide updates to be published in future follow-up collections. Learn more about Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy by visiting sentientmedia.org slash encompass essays. Again, it's sentientmedia.org slash encompass essays. Anxieties are rising. Our first story involves a mink release. I had not heard about this, but fortunately, I was on the Drover site, the meat industry site, and informed me that animal rights activists released mink in Utah, Idaho. And last month, apparently, animal rights activists released approximately 2,000 mink and, quote unquote, vandalized fur farms. It doesn't say how they vandalize them, so we don't know in northern Utah and southern Idaho. Interesting. I haven't heard of a mink release in a long time. Of course, this is an industry site, so they are characterizing it in industry ways. First of all, they said that most of the mink stayed near their nesting boxes. Now, that may be true. It may not be true. I don't trust anything that is said by the person who conveyed this information. That's Michael Whalen, the executive director of Fur Commission USA. So it doesn't strike me as a reliable source. 
But according to him, quote, all the mink release ticks did negative for coronavirus and 90% were recaptured. When the animals are released, they don't want to leave the farm. I, I don't know what really happened. I don't know how many of them they recaptured. But like the way they characterize it, that they don't want to leave the farm. I mean, how confused must these animals be? And I'm sure some do manage to escape, but it's probably, I mean, li- they've been living in hell. They have never seen the outdoors. I can't even imagine. But at least, uh, you know, some of them were able to think through the process, however a mink thinks, and, and get out. And I doubt it, the other ones didn't stay there because they don't want to leave the farm. Of course, his one option for where they went was the road. He thinks that the traffic noises draw them because it sounds like the tractor that feeds them. So they may head to the road where they get hit by vehicles. And, you know, the big the big point here, of course, is that mink can get coronavirus. They're one of the animals that can get coronavirus. And these mink had coronavirus. The mink caught, according to Will, and the mink caught the COVID from laborers that had the disease. They, he contends that everybody is safe because... They can't convey it to humans. Do I believe that? Well, I don't believe anything these people say. I don't know the facts, but the fact that the Fur Commission says it doesn't mean that uh, that I believe it. But clearly, the anxieties are rising about uh, from the mink industry about the fact that they are exposing all sorts of people to potential contamination with COVID, or at least people think they are. Just one more uh, harm that this hideous loathsome industry is is perpetrating on on people and most of all on these poor little animals. All right, meetingplace.com, the writer's block column by Tom Johnston. The title of this article is Take It All In. He goes on and on about blah, blah, blah. They all start with these, you know, cute little stories about some hike he was on and then they get to the point. It's like their style. His point here is that this is a weird article and it's has, you know, it has a lot to do with stuff I've been hearing about how incredibly successful meat has been and how well it's been selling. And I don't know, you know, what the real story is on that, but what what he calls consumers' voracious appetite for the full spectrum of animal protein is tempered by this information. He says from March 15th, as proof, he says from March 15th through August 23rd, dollar sales at the grocery store meat department rose 31.7%. Well, that is a huge increase. He says later on that the numbers were indeed incredible at the grocery store counters. Well, of course they were really high. This doesn't mean anything. Nobody was eating out. Of course, foods that that at the grocery store were selling better. So I don't know what they really mean. Are are they are they just silly? Uh, Do they not get it, or or are they trying to convey this idea that meat is doing really well? What I think is particularly interesting about this column, though, is that he also points out that the meat alternative market, uh, which is what he's calling it, meat, which doesn't, you know, is better than their usual names, is is also doing really well. And he's taking a very friendly tack toward it. From here on this platform, the meat alternative market is a small pond. As with small meat processors, faux meat manufacturers won't soon outswim the larger fish whose size, scale, and efficiency are unmatched. Well, I totally agree, obviously. But even though he thinks that they're not that big a threat and he's saying that they're not that big a threat, he's being very friendly and he's kind of hoping for them to to succeed. Because he goes on to say, but as we focus on the growing global population 
and the protein requirements that the latter alone will not be able to meet all are part of a broad and dynamic landscape where each has its rightful and profitable place. Boy, they are really shifting their language. They, uh, at least in, in this corporate part of the, the meat industry, so I'm sure the ranchers aren't, aren't uh, shifting their language because they're in actual competition, but you can see it happening. They are supportive. They have shifted from hostile to supportive. You know, I'm sure that, that they are shifting the way they think about who they want to be supporting and who they want to be investing in. Really interesting stuff. All right, finally, this is a horrible story. It's from our friends over at Plant-Based News. BBC under fire for pulling documentary, Meet a Threat to Our Planet. And uh, this is a story by Liam Gilliver. And as I said, it's on Plant-Based News. And it's about this, this documentary about climate change, focused on climate change, entitled Meet a Threat to Our Planet. The BBC had this um, film on. It's narrated by animal biologist Liz Bonin. And then they got a lot of complaints from the National Farmers Union. I mean, this is just a disgrace. They actually pulled this program. And apparently the, the members of the NFU uh, claimed the program was biased in its depiction of livestock farming. And they failed to make clear distinctions between grass-fed regenerative beef farming in the UK and cattle ranching in the Amazon. And basically their claim is that they focus too much on intensive farming and, you know, not enough on, on what they consider more progressive forms of farming. Well, this is bullshit. Because as this article points out, an estimated 73% of farmed animals in the UK are kept in factory farms. That actually seems like a low estimate to me, with close to, quote, 800 US-style mega farms operating across the nation. It's another shameful fact about the US that makes me feel so sad that these factory farms are actually called US-style mega farms. It's not wrong, it just makes me sad. And according to Compassion World Farming, there's been a 26% increase in intensive animal farming in Britain. In the last six years, 26% in six years. Unbelievable. And they're, they're arguing that this documentary was inaccurate because it didn't focus on the kind of uh, animal farming that they want people to focus on, uh, which is just a, a minuscule part of what's really going on. Like we cannot afford to be ignoring the implications of climate change at this point. This is really crazy. But, you know, they won, at least so far. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer. and Be safe out there. Social distance. Stay home. Wash your hands and listen to podcasts.